You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. We're talking about the best books of 2007, continuing. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Rick. Well, it seems like we didn't get, have quite enough time to get through everything last night. So let's talk about uh, somebody that I can't believe I missed, Charlie Houston. He really came out big last year. Uh, his already dead vampire series is just the Joe Pitt case books, as he calls them. Those are really superb, and we just have the third one now, Half the Blood of Brooklyn. Yeah, Houston's really kind of jumped onto the scene really quick. He's really at the top of the field, I think, right now. His books are so so well written that the dialogue and the action is just nonstop. And I think one thing I really like about them is they are mercifully brief. It's not like you're when you tuck into a Charlie Houston book. It's not like you're making a a multi week commitment. You know, you can sit down with a you know a six pack of beer on a good day and plow through a Joe Case book without uh, doing anything except for laughing and saying the word fuck a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, one of the good things that I think a lot of writers miss is is pacing. And, you know, sometimes particularly for that type of book, just uh, a nonstop quick pacing that just moves you right through the narrative, um, you know, is an incredible virtue that you know, he definitely has. And another vampire novel that I think was only on the fringes of uh, the horror field, but it has now been pulled up for adaptation, it's going to star Hilary Swank, the, the movie, is A Fangland. That was by John Marks. He was a CBS reporter for 60 Minutes for many years, a producer, line producer. And this book has a combination, an interesting combination of some of the kind of uh, uh, Japan horror tropes with uh, things infecting videotapes and kind of creepy video stuff. And also just some pure, flat-out uh, literary magic uh, set in, in uh, Transylvania. That's interesting. That's one I haven't uh, gotten to yet, but uh, it's definitely on my list. Well, it's a really interesting and uh, fascinating combination. And, of course, the third of the vampire uh, authors is Christopher Moore, who's uh, You Suck. <laughs> yeah, the long-awaited follow-up <laughs> to, um, to Bloodsucking Fiends. Yeah. San Francisco, just a, a, a joy to read Christopher Moore, as always. And, and he's, he's uh, not only is he very funny, he, he also is, his books are kind of poignant, I think. You know, they have, you care just enough about the characters, so it's not just all silliness. You really like these people, and you really want them to succeed and, you know, destroy the ancient vampire, or at least to put him out to sea so, for long enough so that he can um, come back in another sequel. Yeah, absolutely. That that sense of of humanness. I mean, he's always mixing in just strange, otherworldly, you know, kind of tropes or fantastic elements. But you know, his, his work is very character driven, and you just, you know, you fall in love with the characters. Um, one of the books I think that was really interesting that came out this year, you published, um, the Alex Bledsoe book. Oh yeah, Sword Edge Blonde. Yeah, that that one was another one. Um, you know, it's very character driven. It's a fusion of hard boiled, uh, hard boiled mystery and um, fantasy, but done completely straight. And so it's got kind of a gritty edge and kind of a dark tone to it. 
Now, you work at Borderlands Books on, on occasion. You've been known to haunt the premises. Yeah. Tell us what's selling well there, what people who come into an ind- one of America's leading independent uh, genre fiction bookstores are looking for and asking after. Well, um, the Neil Asher books are remarkably popular. The, the um, Gridlinked and Skinner, um, he, he writes a, a, a near future or a far future um, kind of space opera that's loosely modeled maybe on Ian Banks's culture books. This is called Polity, and um, it's an AI-dominated, kind of benevolent dictatorship-esque you know, humanity ruled by these AIs. Um, and he's got a couple different series threads, a couple different viewpoint characters, um, and a host of novels. And um, so that's a series, um, every time those, there's a new um, Polity book that comes out, um, people are lined up for that one. Um, another one that people are... Well, now, about Neil Asher, one of the things that's interesting is he is remarkably prolific guy, and actually he had to ask his uh, publisher in the U.K., Macmillan, if he could write more than... if they would publish more than one book a year. So now he's, I think, at a schedule of every six to nine months of new books, and he's just got all sorts of stuff coming out. His latest book in the U.K. is called Hill Diggers. Yeah. And I don't think it's a... a, a a polity book straight out. It's something yet again. And and he had another book that I really liked called Cowl. Yeah, right. That was a, a what I would call that a, not a space opera so much as a time opera. Right, right. <laughs> it, it used a lot of the kind of the space opera tropes, but mar- marching across time. And it did include, in fact, uh, Ian Fleming, who's, I think, uh, part of it, another one of the um, inspirations for Asher's... Uh, Agent Ian Cormack books. Yeah, yeah. Well, and speaking of his prolificity, that's um, that's one thing that we we got um, as we as a nightshade got very lucky with. We approached him about um, doing a novella with him, and um, eighty thousand words later, he turned in what became Prater Moon for us, which was a, a early polity, early in the timeline polity novel. Um, and you're right, he's incredibly prolific, and he's been outstripping his. British publishers' ability to keep up with them. So yeah, they've they've moved up the timeline for publishing that. Um, they're actually bringing out a British edition of um, Prater Moon pretty soon, and um, and actually Neil's just turned in a new polity novel for us on um, uh, the Shadow of the Scorpion. Oh really, boy? I, well, I can't wait because I love Prater Moon. One thing about Asher's work that I really like is I think he's got a handle on science fiction horror that very few writers have had. Absolutely. I mean, he has a, a, a he does icky space monster really well. Uh, in, a, in a similar, his writing style isn't similar to China Mieville's, but the kind of visceral aesthetic, the, the the willingness to just you know immerse yourself in you know in the in the monsters and the goo in kind of a gleeful way. Oh, I love that. I'm a I'm a monster hound, so that's I think one of the reasons that Asher resonates so strongly with me. I... Absolutely. Um, I, at Borderlands, um, I often have to my my, my scale for um, you know I love the monsters, I love the goo, I love stuff like that, and so occasionally customers will come back and they'll say, you know, I liked it, but that was really gross or that was really violent, and I have to I have to remember sometimes that not everybody's you know bar for normalcy. This isn't quite where mine is. But yeah, Asher is, not only does he do the monsters well, we were talking about pacing earlier, he's just uh, got a great sense of pacing and nonstop action. He just moves the story right along. And um, yeah, 
um, he's a he's a favorite at Borderlands. Well, tell me who else is moving at Borderlands. One of the things I like about Borderlands is they still carry a lot of, uh, you know, the limited edition books and, and uh, small press books. And, and some uh, of the independent bookstores have backed away from that because of the they are competing with the online sales. Yeah, I mean, it's always it's always tough because, you know, the limited editions, there is a limited market for them. Um, and so they're never going to have the massive you know they're never never going to sell as many copies but you you have to put in just as much you know labor and time and effort you know into getting a limited edition title in stock kept in stock as you do for you know uh the latest paranormal romance bestseller so the the return on investment isn't necessarily there from a dollars and cents standpoint but at the same time the sense of community and you know being able to be a one-stop shop for everything has always been, you know, one of the things that drives drives the owner Allen. You know, the small press stuff that he picked up was, was some of the first, you know, one of the first decisions he made was he wanted to be very representative of, you know, what was going on in the fringes of the genre, and I think that's really helped build the community between, you know, between the publishers and the readers, and you know, because buying stuff online is is convenient. It's it's very easy when you know what you want. You want that new, you know, um, monkey brain title that just came out last month. You know you want that, and you can special order it. But for the stuff that you didn't know that you want, you know, being able to touch it and browse it and see it over the course of a month or two months sitting on the shelf calling out to you wistfully. I don't know if there's some... I, I may be a romantic bookseller, but there's there's something about, you know, the ritual of, of seeing books on the shelf and, you know touching them and, and considering them amongst other books of a similar ilk. It, well, that's absolutely true um, because, you know, I, I'm a reviewer, so I get a lot of books in the mail, <clears throat> and, and you'll pay a certain amount of attention when it, like, gets dropped into your hands. But on the other hand, um, there's a book that I, I – but also, A, publishers don't always – kind of inconsistent in what they'll send you. So one of the books I missed last year and didn't see until just – the end of this year was uh, Robot Dreams by Sarah Varon. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard of that one. It's a it's a by a publisher called First Second, and it's a just an absolutely gorgeous wordless graphic novel. <clears throat> That's right. And uh, in it, basically, dog builds robot, takes robot to beach. They have a lovely day, and the the drawings. You wouldn't think that somebody could invest drawings of a dog and a robot with as much emotion as Varen successfully does, but they're just really sweet and you really like these two characters and there's a, they have a lot of character. Well, the problem with taking Robot to the beach is that when Robot goes for a swim, he comes back and lays down on the beach and he is immobilized. So he spends the next, essentially the rest of the book, stuck on the beach dreaming of what he'd like to be doing Oh no! while Dog tries to figure out a way to... to uh, um, rescue him uh, and isn't able to do so. But it's just a lovely book about friendship, loss, longing, regret. I mean, it has all these real emotions that you're going to, you know, that you'd be hard-pressed to find in many, you know, complex literary novels or hard-pressed to ex even experience when reading them. But they, they, this happens in a book with no words. And it was a book that um, I found when I was browsing around Bookshop Santa Cruz just cruising through and looking what they had out. And I, you know, once you get to the point where robots lying on the, on the ground, on the beach, it's just really, it's a remarkable book. And, and as you say, it's really important to walk past that $60 
$70 limited edition about three times. Sometimes you have to do that. You have to look at it. You open it and crack it. Do I? Do I? Do I? Do I? Yes, I do. Right, right. Well, another author that um, actually is, is really popular at, uh, at Borderlands, in part because um, he used to be a local boy, is uh, Cory Doctorow. And um, like his collection, Overclocked, um, which came out this year, I think is quite spectacular. And he's always, um, um, he occasionally gets back to the Barry and will you know, sign stock, or you know, we have a, a program where we'll have him inscribe books to mail-order customers you know, in advance. You know, we'll take lists and stuff like that. So he's really worked hard, both you know, in the real world and online, to create a community in a sense of like outreach to uh, to readers. And um, I, mean, I think Tori's writing—he's—he's he's very much you know, kind of an idea science fiction writer, and I think that really comes across, and definitely in the short story collection, Overclocked. Oh, I I, I totally agree. Uh, Doctorow's easily one of the superstars of science fiction, and I think he's going to break out beyond the limits of the genre. His new book, uh, Little Brother which I'm still trying to lay my hands on an advanced reading copy. Oh, that was the one he read from, right, at the, um, at the SF and SF uh, reading um, that Terry Bisson put on. He was reading from that. It was sort of a YA near future set in San Francisco, the scene that he read. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a kind of a, from what I understand, it's a, almost a how-to book uh, and based somewhat on uh, the magazine Make, Right. If you're familiar with Make, they have a really great – and the visual style of Make is really beautifully done. And they have a bunch of how-tos. And from what I understand, this is a how-to get around pretty much every single security procedure that's been put in place by the TSA to <laughs> save us from ourselves. Right, right. <laughs> and, and yeah, Corey, I think, is is really easily one of the superstars of the field. And as I say, somebody who's going to really break out into the mainstream, I think, without having – actually changing his content, which will be nice. Well, he's always had that kind of, you know, he's appealed outside the, the kind of core science fiction constituency, so to speak. You know, he, he came uh, from an online rights activist organization. He had a high profile because of that. And, you know, I think he appeals to a lot of technologically inclined people. So I think it's an interesting mix. His, uh, his, his fans are definitely an interesting mix. Um, another writer who has clearly been far, far more influential um, than necessarily his commercial success. Um, just had a, a landmark collection come out, um, Things Will Never Be the Same, Howard Waldrop. That came out this last year. Oh, wow. No, I don't, never saw that, but Howard Waldrop is a, is a legendary figure. Yeah, and um, this collection is a huge, like, 450-page book. Uh, all of the stories from 1980 to, or not all of them, but a best of from 1980 to 2005. And um, it came out from um, Mike Walsh's um, press. Oh, uh, Earth, Earthbound? Oh, God. Earthling. No, Earth, no, not Earthling. No, not Earthling. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm totally blanking on it. Um, old Earth Books. Old Earth Books, right. They did, they did those uh, reprints of the Edward R. Whittemore series. Yeah, they did the Whittemore, the six volumes of Whittemore stuff. So, yeah, I mean, Old Earth does a really remarkable job of, like, you know, bringing these gems into print. And the Whittemore were an example from a couple of years back in this Waldrop collection. I mean, if if... For readers who aren't familiar with Waldrop, this is the you know the place to start, and you know it's a critical volume to have on on one shelf. I think it's just spectacular. Yeah, it, and it, it's something that, as you say, if if the name Howard Waldrop isn't familiar to you, this is the book to buy, and you will find yourself endlessly re- rewarded. I mean, 
the the ugly chickens, and I'm trying to think of the story that is the the title of the story that he has a story about basic training for giant monster invasions. Right, right. The, the grunts for giant monster invasions. Well, I, th- I think um, if your listeners are familiar with uh, M. John Harrison um, and the influence he had on British science fiction writers, mm-hmm. sort of the godfather of British fantastic fiction, I think Howard Waldrop's influence on American science fiction writers is of a similar statue. I mean, two different writers you couldn't find, but Howard's influence, I mean, he's definitely a writer's writer, you know, um, writers like Bruce Sterling kind of grew up and came to their own, you know, and they're from a very similar geographic location, too, but, you know, all these writers just, um, you know, know Howard's work and have, have been influenced by it. I think he's, you know, one of those very lesser-known whites that his influence is felt but not known. And he's hysterical. I saw him at uh, in Toronto. He was part of the roast of uh, and George R. R. Martin. Yeah, and he yeah. is in funny in person. He you could you would think he could be a stand-up comedian. He's, yeah, he's absolutely. very funny, and that sense of humor is, is apparent in his stories as well. Very much so. Now you mentioned M. John Harrison. He was back again this year with Nova Swing. Nova Swing, yeah, the sequel, the sequel to Light. I mean, it stands on its own. It's set in the same universe. Um, it's a little bit grittier, than us, <laughs> if that you can imagine. I, that's hard to imagine. It, uh, <coughs> light is such a... <clears throat> but um, and a narrow, more narrowly focused story. But, uh, yeah, Nova Swing was great. Very, very great novel, this show. And um, now uh, there's an, an author I really like. Uh, his name is Tony Ballantyne. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he finished up a really interesting series. Um, this Started year. out with recursion, right? Recursion and then capacity and divergence. Yeah, divergence just came out, and and the whole series finally came out in the last year and a half in 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 the U.S. So yeah, the third one just came out, and yeah, Bantam put that in mass market this year. Right, right, great and, series. Yeah, that's really? another one that I always turn people on at Borderlands. I'm like, okay, here's this guy you've never heard of before, but it's really good. Yeah, uh, he has a similar. In some ways, it reminds me a bit. Recursion, at least, I started reminded me a bit of Neil Asher and some of the space opera stuff. But then, a, as you go into the series, it becomes more and more like William Gibson or one of the uh, um, more cyberpunk authors. Yeah, but, but he avoids all those cliches and does some very, very interesting. Uh, well, and is also definitely part of I think the new space opera movement mm-hmm. um, because of his kind of like predilection for, you know, alien artifact and its interaction with humanity, and which was kind of at the core of the second book. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's a really interesting mix. Part of the series is post-singularity. Part of it has kind of a cyberpunk feel. There's definitely elements of, you know, kind of the new space opera, Alistair Reynolds or Peter F. Hamilton. And, you know, so, I mean, he, he definitely brings a, a lot of colors, you know, to the canvas, so to speak. Now, uh, a novel that I don't think a lot of horror readers have heard of, but those who like the kind of dense and really grotty um, and intense um, work of, say, um, Ramsey Campbell, this novel called Finn by John Clinch. This is uh, tells the story of Huck Finn's father, and it is extremely terrifying. Wow. Really, okay. really. I'm not familiar with that one at all. It, it's it's his first novel, and it was actually one of the Washington Post's 10 best books of the year. Okay. And it's it, it, it's not uh, it's not an action-packed 
page-turning read. But if you can imagine Ray Bradbury writing um, Huck Finn's father as something along the lines of a repressed serial killer, (laughs) (laughs) it's really grotty and dense and awful, awful, awful. It's, It's a wonderfully written book. It's beautifully written, and but it's just very interesting. I, that, I, that, that playing around, is it literally Huck Finn's? It's literally Huck Finn's father, because all we know about Huck Finn's father are the artifacts that are found in the room. Right. The the leg, the, the false leg, and these other artifacts. Uh, he so re- he's definitely playing around in kind of like a literary um, homage, either a Kathy Acker or Dan Simmons-esque kind of layering on, on existing pop culture tropes and existing literary tropes. Oh, absolutely. But it's the, fun. Oh, it's, it's, it's fun, but it's, uh, the writing is very different from Twain. I mean, okay. this is very dense and intense and really awful, awful, awful. And if you like really <laughs> awful, 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 I suggest you check out Twain, uh, Finn because you, I think you'll find yourself really excited by it. Well, speaking of horror, and I do apologize for mentioning one of my own books, but um, oh, Laird, you should Laird Barron's collection. Oh, um, right, um, is just I think a, a landmark collection. Obviously, I'm a bit biased, but you know, every time he puts out a story, it you know gets nominated for an award, or I, I think it's a really big event when he writes something new. And um, well, well, tell us a little bit about his style because he has a really interesting style, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's playing around. It's not mythos fiction. It's not, you know, Lovecraft pastiches. But there's a lot of kind of Lovecraftian, eldritch kind of beings or, or stuff kind of breaking through the narrative, the narrative grit. Um, you know, I kind of like comparing him to a, a, if, if, you know, Dashiell Hammett and Thomas Ligotti, you know, had a bastard offspring, it might look something like, um, like Laird Baring, because... You know, his narratives and his characters are, have far more kind of like, um, they're not your typical detached Lovecraftian, you know, um, who doesn't do anything and simply recounting stuff. You know, they're, they're private investigators, they're, you know, they're, they're in the thick of things, um, but they're um, still menaced by these other universally, you know, other things from another plane or existence. And, I don't know. He just totally sucks you in from a narrative standpoint. He he, he kind of like does that great fusion of the the kind of here and now with the otherworldly. And, and speaking of Lagodi, he has a, a new book out from uh, Mythos Books. I'm trying to, I'm blanking on the title now. Uh, but anytime Thomas Lagodi puts something out, it immediately goes in, into my collection, even if it has repeats, because often these. These repeat volumes have one new gem by him, and he's right. certainly one of our top authors. Absolutely, there. absolutely. It's 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 some of these authors. It's frustrating that they're not as not more prolific, but you know when the quality is as high as it is, you know writers like Ligotti, you know that's that's okay. I'll I'll take what I can get and be very happy with it. Um, well, speaking of uh, short stories, there was an anthology that came out last year. Um, the Paper Cities anthology. Paper Cities, an anthology of urban fantasy. No, I never saw that one. Yeah, it was a it was a small from a smaller press. Census Five was the name of the publisher. Um, Ekaterina um, Sadia was the uh, editor. Oh right, right. She had a, a a book from out from Prime, which I can't quite read the title of. The type is too small. Right. <laughs> <from here. laughs> Um, but the anthology I was exposed to at World Fantasy, and there's a um, 
It's got a great club, you know, Jay Lake and Hal Duncan and just a really stand-up, stand-out selection of contributors. Um, and, you know, just the kind of general urban theme, general, general theme of urban fantasy. Um, this was actually one of my, you know, what I thought was one of the standout anthologies of the year. Um, and that's the beauty of the genre, you know. It, it can come from, you know, Franklin an editor's not very well known. I've, I've known her for a couple years now from, from various conventions, but she's, her name doesn't have recognition value, but she's managed to draw together a lot of, um, you know, really top-notch talent and put together, you know, this book that came out from, you know, from a very small, you know, press. And, uh, you know, it's just one of the best ones out there. One guy who's finally getting a lot of attention over stateside is uh, Michael Marshall Smith. Over here, I think he's known as uh, Michael Marshall. Right, right. He's doing the, the, the more straight-ahead horror stuff under Michael Marshall. And he had the two books out this year. He had The Intruders, which was, uh, he, even he states, can be loosely tied into his uh, Strawman trilogy. Right. And, and a book that I really liked was The, was the Servants, was it, from uh, Earthling. Right, Earthling right. Publishers, really a, a, a bit of a return to form for him in terms of the, some of the more absurd and surreal aspects. And I, I, it's coming out, again, as a U.S., in a U.S., you know, mass market kind of edition, which I think is really good. He, he's a guy who you could see in some ways just remaining forever in the shadows, but it's nice to see that these kind of things put in front of, you know, America's unsuspecting eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, he's one of those incredibly influential writers, um, you know, of the same ilk of, you know, or era of, say, a Graham Joyce or somebody who, you know, has been just doing incredible stuff and, you know, not very well known here in the States. I mean, I think his last, um, that last trilogy has done very well, and under Michael Marshall, he's actually you know, commercially doing a bit better. So, you know, keep my fingers crossed. He continues to keep finding a wider audience because he is one of the, you know, one of the great ones out there. Well, I, I, I could go on, but I think our readers have already, our listeners have already spent way too much money on our, yeah. <laughs> on our time. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, always great talking with you. You know, I love to talk about my favorite books, and, you know, at the end of the year is the best time to do that. We've been speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. My pleasure. Talk to you again sometime. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony. Thank you.